talking about who would be our keynote for uh, SBES this year. Uh, I had no doubts about who was who would be my pick. And fortunately, Tayana being the uh, great co-chair she is and a great friend she is, she immediately agreed. Uh, so I'm really excited and happy today to introduce Alexander Serbrenik, uh, who will talk about gender and software, open source software development. Uh, for the very few here who don't know him, if there's anyone who doesn't know him, <laughs> Alexander is a full professor of, soft, of social software engineering at Eindhoven University of Technology. His research goal is to facilitate evolution of software by taking into account social aspects of software development. He has co-authored a book, Evolving Software Systems, published by Springer in 2014, and more than 100 scientific papers and articles. He has won several distinguished paper and distinguished reviewer awards. So, Alexander, really excited to hear what, about uh, what you have to say. Thank you for being with us. Let's go. Thank you very much, Fernando. Thank you very much, Tayana. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it is a great honor and great pleasure for me to um, be in Brazil, uh, even so virtually. Um, but I'm still looking forward to uh, a more, to a less virtual presence. So today I'm going to talk uh, about gender. Uh, so why do we actually even want to look at gender in terms of software engineering research? Well, software development is not so different from the harvest, which we see on the screen. It's a um, sketch by Nicholas Peterson Berham from the uh, Royal uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Brussels. So what we see here, we see here people of different genders working together towards a shared goal. And this is exactly what we have in software development. Of course, our goal is slightly different, but we are still people, there are still people of different genders and they have a shared goal. So when we're talking about um, social aspects or human aspects in general, we usually make distinction between variables which are related to individuals, such as gender, but also tenure, but also age, uh, race, and so on and so forth. And once those variables are measured at the level of a group, then we can talk about diversity because of course diversity is meaningless uh, as long as there is no group which, where we can measure it. And those variables can be expected to affect how the software development process is going, whether it's about how productive people are, how do they communicate, how, do they, how long do they stay in the project and ultimately the product they produce. So just to highlight a couple of uh, the findings we um, have uh, established uh, in the previous years, uh, we have seen that, for instance, gender diversity is beneficial for productivity. So more gender diverse teams are more productive than less gender diverse teams. Uh, similarly, tenure diversity is beneficial for productivity. So teams which have uh, larger differences in terms of uh, duration of engagement of their participants tend to produce more than those which have uh, more balanced uh, tenures. Uh, another example is that gender diversity reduces likelihood of uh, negative communication patterns. So black cloud is one of those communication smells, one of those problems in communication when participants cannot distinguish between uh, the noise and the signal, between essentially 
what is meaningful for them in terms of communication, and what is meaningless. Uh, more gender diverse teams tend to be less inclined to uh, exhibit this kind of um, negative communication mechanisms. And we also know from a different study that presence of this kind of communication uh, problems is reflected in the source code. So if we have bad communication, we have bad code. But a priori, when we started working on this topic, it was not necessarily clear whether diversity in teams was good or bad. And of course, when we are talking today about diversity, uh, usually people tend to see it as something um, undoubtedly positive, right? We would like to embrace diversity. Why would we embracing diversity if it's not good? Um, in terms of effectiveness, diversity is indeed good because there are studies that show that diverse problem solvers tend to outperform high ability problem solvers. So it's not enough to put uh, very talented people in the room to get the best solution. Those people should also be different. And another thing is that multicultural social networks tend to promote creativity. At the same time, diversity is, of course, comes with a cost. So a priori, it could also be bad. People tend to prefer working with others who are similar to them in terms of values, beliefs, and attitudes. And it is very normal, because if we share those values, beliefs, or attitudes, we do not need to waste time explaining what we believe to be important, what we believe to be non-important. And to make it even worse, uh, people tend to categorize themselves into specific groups. So on the uh, upper right corner of the slide, uh, we might see, a, you might see a, and um, some of you might recognize it. Um, anybody maybe can type in the chat, where does it come from, this crest? Harry Potter, says Vinnie. Hogwarts, says Paula. Right, so those are indeed uh, the four houses of Hogwarts. Uh, and the reason I'm putting it on the slide is because if you are familiar with the Harry Potter books, you might remember that people from uh, Gryffindor tend to treat each other much better than they treat people from Slytherin. So this categorization, this social categorization in this particular case was imposed on those people, but people also tend to categorize themselves uh, without a formal requirement to do so. People who are coming from the same village, people who are coming from the same previous educational program tend to stick together as a, as a, and oppose themselves to people who are coming from a different village or a different program. I see here quite a number of Ravenclaw alumni. Good, good. So um, given this um, ambiguity about the impact of diversity, uh, we have started looking into the impact of diversity on productivity on GitHub teams. Uh, so we looked at gender diversity and we looked at tenure diversity. So tenure in this particular case was duration of engagement in a particular GitHub project. So tenure diversity means teams which have uh, people who have a lot of experience in the project together with people who have uh, limited experience in this project. 
And we have studied the impact of those two diversity variables on productivity. So we operationalize productivity in a very simple way. It's just a number of commits per quarter. This is what is often being done in the literature. I know that this is, of course, a problematic measure, but it's unfortunately what we have. And controlling for all kinds of confounds, we have observed that gender diversity is beneficial for productivity for all teams. And tenure diversity seems to be beneficial for diversity for mid-size and large teams. A more tricky result came out of the discussion of turnover. So of course, we can have a highly productive team, which is produces a lot of commits or produces a lot of code per time unit. But if this team cannot sustain, if this team breaks out uh, after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, uh, then this productivity is kind of lost. So this is why, in addition to productivity, we looked at turnover. So we looked at the fraction of a team which is new with respect to the previous quarter. And there we saw differences between gender and tenure. So tenure diversity is in positive for turnover, meaning that if you put very experienced people together with very unexperienced people, they will produce a lot, but this team will not sustain, the team will break out. And no such relation can be found for gender. I have to say here that this relation between tenure diversity and turnover, turnover turned out to be moderated by the median of the tenure. So if the median of the tenure is high, so if some kind of average developer is relatively experienced, then this negative impact on turnover is not really observed. But if you put together lots of unexperienced people with a couple of experienced people, the median, meaning the median is low, then this kind of combination is not going to be very successful. And actually similar phenomena have been observed for Wikipedia. Let me show you another example of our studies. This time we looked at those, um, at the relation between diversity and, and specifically gender uh, and communication uh, anti-patterns, communication smells. So I already mentioned black clouds is a situation when uh, participants cannot distinguish between noise and signal, between useful and useless information. Uh, but there are also other kinds of smells. So for instance, radio silence, it's an instance of the so-called unique boundary spanner. So it's a problem when we have a member which interposes themselves into every formal interaction between two groups. Uh, and this means that if this particular person wants, they can block the entire communication between those two groups. And this person is not typically not flexible enough to introduce parallel channels because it's essentially about power. So what we have seen, what we see in this image is that um, the variable which affects this radio silence phenomenon is not even gender diversity, but number of women. And the difference is important here because uh, the number of women suggests that even if women are outnumbered, they still can uh, reduce the likelihood of this particular problem. So this is related to the, to the role that women tend to take in groups of mediation and communication. And as such, they reduce the likelihood of problematic scenarios such as radio silence. And on the right hand of the slide, you see relations between those 
community smells and code smells. So for instance, radio silence tend to be positive for blobs, so right? If there is a person who can interpose themselves between two groups, then uh, the source code is more likely to, to uh, exhibit features of a blob of unstructured source code. So how do we do this kind of work? So typically we combine two kinds of techniques. We um, talk to people, meaning uh, conduct interviews, conduct surveys, um, and we analyze data, typically from GitHub, sometimes from Stack Overflow. So for instance, for the study of impact of gender diversity on productivity, we first of all have uh, run a big survey to identify what people believe to be a team on GitHub, because it's not necessarily obvious. And then we have performed, we have used this definition, which we got from the survey to perform a series of measurements on the GitHub data. But of course, you know, right? We can talk about how to measure the number of commits. We can talk about how to measure the number of pull requests, but what about gender? How do you even measure gender on GitHub? And before I go any further, I need to make two remarks. First of all, um, gender is a complex social construct. So any kind of automated detection technique will make some kind of simplifying assumptions. We are going to talk about those assumptions um, a little bit later, but this is a necessary evil, right? You cannot um, do anything unless you make those simplifying assumptions. And of course, we are not going to talk about biological sex. Another issue we need to keep in mind that gender is privacy sensitive. Um, open source contributors might be hiding their gender on purpose. Specifically, we know that there are women developers who prefer not to disclose their gender due to safety concerns. There might be open source projects and companies that do not necessarily want us to uh, know how many women or how many men or how many non-binary people are in their projects. For some projects, it might be related to the loss of faith, right? Because essentially they want to look more gender diverse than they actually are. So the first group of techniques we are going to discuss are related to talking to people. So essentially, how can we ask about gender when we are conducting interviews and surveys? So this is a book, which is a highly influential guide to questionnaire design uh, by Brad Bernatal. And when it comes to gender, this is a, the uh, items they recommend is on the slide. So what is your sex or what is names sex? And of course, here we see um, two options, male and female. So this is 2004. Um, it is kind of disturbing that recently I have seen a survey which was using a pretty similar instrument in 2020. So first of all, it conflates gender and sex because um, the words male and female tend to refer to biological sex. When we, if we want to talk about gender, then the more appropriate language would be referring to women and men. Another point here, there are only two boxes. 
However, a recent, a very recent survey of Stack Overflow indicates that 1.2 of the respondents do not indicate percent of the respondents do not indicate identify as either men or women. So 1.2% might not appear as much. And in the previous uh, surveys of Stack Overflow and GitHub, this percentage was a bit lower, between 0 0.7 and 0 0.9. But if you compare it to the general figures over the population, it is almost three times higher. So there is something going on here. What is going on here? It's a more complicated question. But in any case, when we are asking about gender, we should take, we should be very aware that not everyone is necessarily a man or a woman. So Greta Bauer has proposed the following uh, items, the following question in 2012. So we see here male and female uh, and something else specified. So this is a problematic way of asking about gender also because it talks about something else. This is a phenomenon known as othering. So by phrasing the question in this particular way, the researcher has an gives an indication that there are two preferred answers, which are in this case male and female, and then something else. That's not nice. That can be experienced as offensive. To make it even worse, when this item has been used in practice, uh, specifically for trans feminine and trans masculine respondents, the results were all over the place. So you see that whatever gender, uh, so, so you see that both trans feminine and trans masculine respondents have chosen all the options. So this item is not only offensive, it is also not reliable. The reason why it is not reliable is because if it's a survey item, the uh, respondents have to guess what is essentially, what, what, what does the researcher have in mind? Are we talking about gender or are we talking about biological sex? So not surprisingly, different people reach different conclusions. If this item is used during the interview, then, um, transgender respondents felt that it was cognitively taxing. And again, it is the same thing, right? You are asking people to make a choice which they cannot. So a much better way to ask about gender, and this is not my idea, this is coming from the HCI community, from the HCI guidelines for gender equity and inclusivity, would be to ask an open question. Where do you identify on the gender spectrum? And of course, it's an open question, meaning that uh, there is a risk that um, we will need to code, we will need to manually uh, process uh, the answers we are going to receive. But usually software engineering surveys are small. Um, so typical surveys I'm typical surveys I'm aware of involve maybe 100 respondents, maybe a little bit more. And most of them will, of course, choose women or men with this language or with that language. So the effort uh, which we will we'll need to spend uh, coding those answers 
is quite limited. And it is not comparable to the benefits you are getting by asking this question in a more open way and essentially hearing something which is more interesting. But the main problem with surveys is of course the response rate. Um, so in our recent study uh, that we are, I'm probably going to mention later on today, we have uh, surveyed around 60,000 participants. So, so we have analyzed GitHub data of 60,000 participants. So if you know that a typical software engineering survey has a response rate of 10 to 20%, then in order to get gender of 60,000 participants, we need to send 300,000, 600,000 invitations. And it's not really a problem in terms of getting those people. GitHub is large enough to get all those people. But if everybody is going to send uh, 600,000 mails, then our poor GitHub developers are going to be completely fed up with our surveys. And this is already happening. So more recently, uh, I am seeing, and it's just my feeling, it's not an official study, but my feeling is that the response rates from open source communities tend to drop even lower than 10%. This can be an indication of this kind of survey fatigue. So if you want to analyze large amount of data, data about large groups of software developers, we typically want um, to do something else. We want to analyze this automatically. And this is what we are going to talk about now. So any kind of automatic gender detection assumes that self-presentation and artifacts created can be used to identify gender. If this is not, if, if you do not believe in this assumption, then you should not be using those automatic tools. How those tools tend to work? Well, the tools usually come in three flavors, name to gender, face to gender and artifact to gender. So name to gender means usually means that um, the tool starts with a long list of names. First names um, tend to be in many countries, pretty gender specific. So if we see a name like uh, Mia or Julia, uh, the tool would guess that the person is a woman. And if we see a name like um, Michael or George, the tool will guess that it's a man. Of course, different countries have different cultures and different tradi naming traditions. For instance, a name such as Andrea will be typically associated with men in Italy and in, with women in countries like Germany. I'm wondering how it is in Brazil, because of course Brazil uh, has a mixture of different cultures. But uh, typically this kind of name to gender tools uh, take, uh, tend to include geographic location as a proxy for ethnicity. Some tools such as Namsor, which is a commercial tool. Ah, in Brazil it's a female name, right. So, um, and in, uh, so some tools such as Namsor, which is a commercial tool, are slightly smarter than that. 
they ask not only for the first name, but also for the last name. And then they tend to use this last name to make certain inferences about ethnical background. Um, this is really a must nowadays because of course, just looking at the scientific community, lots of people work in countries where they have not been born. Uh, we have second generation uh, software developers, uh, software generation people, sorry, who uh, inherit um, names from their first generation and, uh, parents and so on, so which doesn't necessarily match their location. Um, of course, name-based resolution is problematic also because not all names are gender specific. And of course, for such languages as Chinese, lots of gender specific information is simply lost than romanizing Chinese characters to Latin. A slightly better way, I mean, a slightly less culture dependent way would be uh, face to gender. This is a tool called face plus plus. This uh, photo of myself has been taken several years ago. So you see that the uh, gender recognition uh, is correct. Uh, it was a little bit, it is a bit optimistic in terms of age, but at least uh, it was an attempt. Um, unfortunately, I, um, I have also tried this tool uh, on a series of uh, photos of a transgender individual. And of course, the answers that um, this tool gave were all over the place. So for depending on lighting and time of the day, uh, the tool will essentially interpret these images being a woman or being a man. And the last group of approaches is related to artifacts. So in general, uh, there are gender specific differences related to writing, to writing prose. Um, women tend to use more first person pronouns than men, right? So there are all kinds of gender uh, related differences. It is not a priori clear to what extent those differences transfer to technical writing, let alone to writing source code. And of course, a major issue there would be that we are being trained in a certain way by certain books, by certain teachers. To what extent are those variables overshadowing the gender effect? But it's one of the possibilities. In any case, whatever automatic tools um, we are going to you are going to use or you want to consider using, you need to keep in mind several issues with those automatic tools. So first of all, accuracy is never perfect. So Kruger and Hermann uh, have observed that text to gender uh, seems to work roughly well for relatively short texts. Uh, between 60 and 90%. But again, roughly well, as you see, 60% is not that great. Uh, for names, uh, it's a study of Sophie Chu, uh, it's between 60 and 84%, and it strongly depends on what kind of names. So for instance, uh, in that study, one of the previous versions of NAMSOR was evaluated and it performed very, very poorly on Chinese, Japanese, and Korean names. As you can imagine that is a problem of a data set, right? So this tool was trained on Western names. So of course, Chinese, Japanese, and uh, Korean names uh, were uh, completely terra incognita for the tool. 
Beyond that, there is a problem with reliability. Um, in one of our previous studies, we have conducted a survey and one of the respondents has indicated that she used a fake GitHub handle such that people would assume that she was a man simply because her official GitHub handle was a, a distinctly was a name which was typically associated with women. So, of course, if people would assume that this person is a man, then the tools will assume that this person is a man as well, because I mean, what, what else could these tools do? This is always a threat to validity, and it is extremely difficult to estimate to what extent the threat is actually taking place. We have anecdotal evidence that is there, but we don't know to what extent. And another issue, of course, that all those tools are assuming gender binary. And we already seen that uh, more than 1.2% of the recent Stack Overflow survey are non-binary people. For um, in the study of Kruger and Herman, all tools were assumed gender binary uh, in OS keys, phase two gender, uh, almost all tools. And uh, the last paper of uh, Santa Maria and Mikhailievich uh, it was names based. So it's not that this name based tools are somehow aware that um, there are non-binary people. It is just that they tend to report some kind of uh, confidence percentage. Um, and uh, if this confidence percentage is below a certain threshold, uh, the tool essentially says, I don't know. It's not that it says, uh, you know, uh, it is uh, not necessarily a woman, not necessarily a man. It can be a non-binary person. So well, essentially, when you are making this choice between uh, talking to people or using automating tools to infer gender, we need to understand that both groups of approaches have their inherent limitations, whether it's related to um, the limited number of people we can survey or to some kind of uh, problematic assumptions those tools are making. So of course, the choice of the technique should be made in function of the research question. And again, it should be, we should discuss what kind of implications the choice of tools have. Yes. So in general, right, with all these uh, studies which have been conducted by many people, we tend to derive the conclusion that gender diversity is good, right? It's good for productivity, has no detrimental effects on turnover, communication is going better, you know, right? Everything is good. So what happens in practice? And practice, and this is the data from the Netherlands. Uh, and um, I also would like to thank uh, one of my PhD students, Wesley Silva Torres, uh, for helping me uh, with uh, getting out information about Brazil. So what we see on the upper uh, plot is the number of um, women and men in Dutch uh, IT. And those are... Um, if I remember correctly, tens of thousands of people. Uh, and you see, of course, that both curves are growing, right? There are more women in IT nowadays uh, than uh, in the middle of the 90s. But if you look at the percentage, then the percentage is very stable. It is roughly one out of five. It's roughly 20%. And it seems that in Brazil, the situation is similar. And when it comes to education, the situation is even worse. Uh, so the blue line corresponds to the uh, average value for the European Union. 
Uh, on the right hand side, you see uh, such Eastern European countries as Romania and Bulgaria. And on the far left, you see Benelux, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, with the Netherlands being the worst pupil in the class. Um, so at least in the, if you look at this plot, you would argue that the situation is not getting any better. So in Brazil, the situation is apparently much better than in the Netherlands, but it is still around the very same 20%. So it's not going to change the situation in the future. So moving from my role as a researcher to my role as an activist of sorts, um, I would like to mention this effort we are doing um, to attract non-standard uh, people, non-typical students to computer science. So Beauty and Joy of Computing is a project coming from the United States, and it has been shown to be successful to attract non-traditional computer science students, including women. So what we have done, uh, we have decided to translate it to Dutch. Um, by now, the translation has been completed. And uh, here you see uh, one of the groups uh, of the one of the meetings of the translation team. You see uh, school kids. You see a couple of professors from several universities. You also see a couple of professionals. Um, and uh, we are going to we are starting to train secondary school teachers to use this uh, educational package uh, at secondary schools. I am very curious uh, whether you have something similar to it in Brazil. So I will appreciate if you can uh, type it in the chat on Discord later on. So another effort which um, is currently taking place uh, is um, an attempt to recruit more women to academia. Those are the figures for my university. In the upper slide, part of the slide, you see percentages for the university as a whole. Uh, and the lower part of the slide, you see uh, figures for our faculty, which is mathematics and computer science. So there is no data available for uh, mathematics separately from computer science. But you see, right? So um, percentages are low. Uh, we are, the percentages are lower than for the university as a whole. Uh, and they are nowhere uh, close to um, what uh, some other disciplines would typically have. So last year, in July 2019, our university has launched the Iran Curie Fellowship Program. The program aimed at uh, attracting talented women to positions of um, assistant associate and full professors. And essentially it meant that every uh, job opening would be open only, only every academic job opening would be open only for women during the first six months of the recruitment. And if after six months, uh, a suited candidate could not be found, then uh, people of any gender could apply. So in this way, we have successfully attracted significant number of women for different positions. You might notice, oh, sorry, you might notice an increase, for instance, uh, in terms of full professors, associate professors, and slightly more assistant professors between 2019 and 2020. This is the impact of the Iran Curie program. But last year, the Institute for Human Rights claimed that the program went too far. So we had to stop the program. 
So essentially, finding the right balance between um, how to attract people who we usually do not attract without uh, being discriminatory is and remains a challenge. So at the moment, our executive board is trying to figure out how to find the right balance between the two. Again, if you have any ideas on this topic, I'm very, I will be very happy to hear your thoughts. So, so far, we have talked about diversity. But of course, diversity is the result about, uh, of efforts you are making to attract people and to keep people. Again, if you are talking about the Rancuri program, right, you see uh, things like uh, special startup packages, uh, support uh, in terms of mentoring, support in terms of um, your own development of your own research line, and so on and so forth. But how does it have, how does it work in open source software development? So this is a study of uh, Sophie Chu and uh, uh, her co-authors. It's a joint work with um, Tartu University and Carnegie Mellon. Um, we see here uh, the survival plot. So on the x-axis, we see time and months. And on the y-axis, we see the so-called survival probability. So we read this plot uh, as follows. If you look at a project, GitHub project, um, um, so after 12 months, roughly 75%, sorry, roughly 70% of men are still contributing to this project. So roughly 12 months after the participation has started. For women, this percentage is lower. It is around 60%. So you see that the orange, of course, the first data point is uh, always 100% because everybody is participating uh, on day zero. But you see that the orange curve is uh, higher than the blue one. So we try to understand what was going on. And we used a lens of social capital to uh, explain uh, this duration of engagement. So we have seen here that um, so we have hypothesized the developers who are involved in projects with different programming languages are more likely to diversify their skills and this is why they are more likely to be engaged for longer so this is why we can take a look at the other plot so this plot shows difference in survival probability between contributors who have high and low language diversity so first of all, what we see here is that this plot is positive. So it is always a good idea to be involved in projects that are using different programming languages because it diversifies your skills. It doesn't matter what gender you have. What is also interesting here is that after roughly 12 months, we start observing difference between women and men. So involvement in projects which involve multiple programming languages is more beneficial for women than for men. So you see here, um, and this is the kind of result I really like in a sense that it's not 
um, some kind of positive message for women only or for men only. It's always a good idea to be involved in this kind of projects, but it is a better, it's more beneficial for women. Of course, attraction and retention are not enough. We have sufficient number of examples of women persevering in less inclusive communities simply because they're determined to see through. So retention is of course there, but it doesn't mean that participating in such a community is a great experience. So, you know, retention is great, but it is not enough. So what's important is, it's important to understand how good do we enable people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, and in this particular case, genders work together. And this is the point of inclusion. I would like to show uh, this snapshot, uh, this screenshot, which I have taken just a couple of minutes before the talk. Uh, Valid Malesh has tweeted about it. Those are perspectives of different Stack Overflow developers in terms of what they would like to change on the Stack Overflow platform. Uh, and the purple bars correspond to topics which are more often mentioned by women. Blue bars correspond to topics which are more often mentioned by men. And what you see is that on the purple side, you see words like root, things, culture, toxic, and so on. So those are words related to norms, to community. If you look at the blue bars, you will see things like page or GitHub or mobile, which are essentially related to specific features of the platform. So while men want, uh, in a way, better GitHub integration, women care more for the community being more welcoming and less offensive, less rude. Of course, it's a generalization and individuals might have different opinions, but this is a picture we see from the very recent Stack Overflow survey. One way to um, deal with this kind of situations to ensure that we are all on the same page when it comes to talking to each other and working with each other is a code of conduct. So there are all kinds of definition of what constitutes a code of conduct. This is one of them. It's coming from the International Federation of Accountants. Um, and what's important here, it refers that it refers to two groups of population. It talks about key stakeholders, but also uh, constituents affected by separations. So even if we don't necessarily think about software developers as working on a project as stakeholders of this project, they are definitely constituents which are affected by its operations, right? So the process of creating the project. Codes of conduct quite popular on GitHub. This is a study from uh, 2017. So we measured those things in 2016. By now, uh, these numbers are even higher. So those were the one, um, 150 most watched GitHub projects. Uh, more than a third of them had a code of conduct. And you see that contributor covenant is the most popular one. 
So to understand what a typical code of conduct would involve, we have conducted a series of interviews with the primary authors of uh, main codes of conduct, the most popular codes of conduct. So what's, um, so we typically see in a code of conduct uh, is a motivational part, right? So usually codes of conduct are not coming from, um, you know, just on a sunny day, I am going to write a code of conduct. Uh, people tend to refer to observations of negative behavior, either in their own project or in software development in general. And this is the primary reason why they're talking about it. Typically, a code of conduct includes uh, expectations. Expectations can be either rule-based or value-based. So rule-based, for instance, do this, don't do that. And value-based uh, is essentially don't be a jerk, right? Be nice to people. The problem here is that if, so rule-based are, of course, easier to apply, right? Um, you can uh, easier judge, decide whether in particular violation has taken place. The problem is that if those rules are not based on a shared consensus, then instead of determining that the violation has taken place, community tends to descend to the discussion whether this violation was a real violation, whether it's essentially reflecting what we believe to be inappropriate behavior. Value-based um, expectations tend to reflect a more profound consensus but at the same time, they're much more difficult to operationalize. Like, I mean, don't be a jerk. Is this kind of behavior jerky enough or not yet? So the boundaries are very uh, fuzzy. So successful codes of conduct typically tend to combine the two. It's not always the case, but this is usually, it seems to be a good idea. Uh, it's interesting that uh, enforcement, so usually enforcement of code of conduct boils down to four things, polite notice, more formal warning, request to leave, and a technical participation prevention, which is known as a ban. Uh, in practice, it seems that polite notice or warning are sufficient in most of the cases. Um, People might be carried away by emotion. People might be carried away by uh, hurt feelings, um, and not necessarily they are not necessarily aware that uh, in, by behaving in a certain way they are violating code of conduct. So a moderator, which might remind them uh, about uh, the rules of behavior, um, is often enough to bring the discussion back on track. Uh, it's also interesting how communities responded to uh, this kind of code of conduct. Uh, in addition to people who said that essentially behavior is not an issue, there were both positive and negative responses. So positive indeed, attracting right people, retaining right people, even repelling wrong people. So there are quite some negative responses along the lines of um, risk of policing. So people are concerned that um, uh, they are being watched. People are being concerned that uh, essentially, instead of doing what, we, what developers are supposed to be doing, meaning building software, they're wasting their time and resources on creating those useless documents. Um, and finally, there is also, and this is a quote, heterosexual white male cannot write a code of conduct. So essentially, this is kind of ad hominem argument 
uh, doubting the ability to, of the authors to create adequate codes of conduct. So in a way, when we studied this, uh, there were um, all kinds of codes of conduct and then GitHub came up with community guidelines. So community guidelines is not really a code of conduct, but more a template for codes of conduct. So you see here those uh, typical things uh, related to uh, be welcoming, be open-minded, uh, different perspectives and so on and so forth. And what's interesting, what's even more interesting is that it becomes very, very easy for GitHub projects to indicate whether they actually have uh, adhered to those community guidelines. So this is, as far as I remember, it's Rails. So you see, it's a very uh, well-organized project. They have a code of conduct, they have uh, contributing guidelines and so on. So they're a welcoming project. Of course, making this kind of things very easy, so making adoption of a code of conduct very easy, uh, GitHub in, probably inadvertently um, actually causes proliferation of this kinds of code of conduct without actual acceptance. It's very easy to include a file which is called codeofconduct.md in your GitHub project. It's, you just type in, um, you just click on a couple of buttons, you type in the email address for reporting and you are done. This is your code of conduct. It doesn't really reflect, it doesn't necessarily reflect anything. It is essentially not clear to what extent people who adopt this kind of code of conduct are ready to act upon what they officially adopt, or whether it is merely a way to signal their welcoming character or their maturity in terms of GitHub Flex. So the last part of the talk, uh, I would like to dedicate to our recent work on um, when we talk to transgender software developers. That's a study of 2019, which I have been privileged to conduct with Dine Ford and Reid Milovich. So what have we done, right? We have uh, conducted a series of semi-structured interviews. Uh, finding transgender software engineers is not so easy. So we have conducted three interviews. Uh, we have compared the topics which have emerged from those interviews with blog posts by other transgender uh, software developers. And specifically in all cases, uh, we are talking about trans women. Uh, and finally, we have uh, asked uh, another uh, person who is a trans woman, who is a software developer, who was not involved in our previous interviews and who did not have the blog post to review our findings to be, to be sure that we do not misinterpret uh, the answers uh, for be received. So from this entire study, there are three topics which have emerged. First of all, a crucial topic seems to be control of identity disclosure. One of our interviewees said that Stack Overflow has constrained expression of identity. And indeed, when you, if you want to ask a question on Stack Overflow, at least when I checked it was the last time, you didn't even need to register. You just ask your question. And then Stack Overflow creates for you a user ID, user one, two, three, four, five, six, which is, of course, uh, a nightmare for gender uh, guessing tools. But from the perspective of the user, uh, it is a very low barrier for participation. Some time ago, GitHub used to require the email address when registration, at registration, and even more, it required you to expose it to the rest of the world. 
this is highly problematic, right? If your um, um, <clears throat> email address, for instance, contains a name which is typically associated with gender you don't identify with, uh, then of course this would um, indicate an um, forced coming out. Daniela Vitruzalik, who is a well-known um, software developer, who is also a transgender woman, she said that the obvious drawback of not being passable is that you become an instant target. So possibility, it is uh, ability to be interpreted as a gender you identify with, right? So possibility, it's not only an identity goal, but also a mean of self-preservation, simply because internet is a hostile or can be a hostile environment for trans people, in particular trans women. Another topic is the fact that uh, software development can provide, um, uh, so another theme which emerged was a theme of an economically stable work. So it's important to understand, so for instance, this is an example of bounty source, right? It's a community with more than 60,000 members who are, hunt, who are hunting for bounties. Right, you can just uh, see tasks, you implement uh, something like, I don't know, cash shuffle support, um, and you can be paid in actual money. So what's important here is that um, transgender Americans are known to experience much higher level of unemployment, poverty, and homelessness than non-transgender non -transgender peers. So for instance, poverty, the difference is um, mind boggling. It's a difference between 29% and 12%. Of course, it's only United States. So I don't know how those things are generalizing beyond the United States, but in a way it's not so surprising that the concern for economically stable work emerged from our study. And again, uh, online work, uh, allowed our participants to dissociate, to distance technical merit from identity, right? As one of our interviewees said, you cannot tell from my technical profile that I'm a transgender. It's not relevant. People don't know. Um, Ross, who is another uh, well-known uh, trans woman who is a software developer, mentioned that technology has leveled playing field for someone like me. So she can get on internet and watch tutorials. So essentially, um, YouTube nowadays provides educational mechanisms that were not available or not necessarily available to uh, our interviewees offline. And the last topic which emerged here is related to autonomy to disengage and engage. Essentially, it's very easy to close your laptop and disengage uh, if the situation becomes problematic in whatever, in whatever means as opposed to actually getting out of the office and closing the door behind you. So those are the three topics which have emerged from our study, control of identity disclosure, so the desire to be seen as presented, uh, economically stable work, and the reason for it is indeed ability to distance technical merits from identity, and autonomy to disengage and re-engage. And when we wrote this paper, we have also added this sentence. We believe that remote work offers a mechanism of control for identity disclosure and empowerment of software developers from any marginalized communities. So yes, we have looked at uh, transgender women, but there might be many other smaller groups, many other marginalized groups, uh, which would appreciate 
this kind of control and remote work can provide this kind of control mechanisms. And just to give you an example of what we mean by saying that whatever works for one community can work for other marginalized communities. I'm going to show you an example, which is um, going back to Margaret Burnett from Oregon State. So this is a picture from Amsterdam. And this is a pavement, right? You see that this is pavement has a special place for wheelchairs, such that uh, people on the wheelchairs can uh, easier uh, cross a road. So this has been designed for people in the wheelchairs. But of course, the very same mechanism works for other people. Some of them might uh, be using, a, might be having a heavy luggage, other might have a child, uh, other might have a stroller or even a tricycle, right? So they have all kinds of minority groups, which the designer of the solution did not even necessarily have in mind, but it worked for them as well. So in a way, remote work could be this kind of mechanism which allowed people from all kinds of marginalized community to benefit from uh, ability to control their identity, disclosure, and feelings of who they are. Of course, and this is a COVID-19 remark, nowadays we all suddenly end up in the context of remote work. Uh, and there's a recent study by Paul Ralph, Sebastian Baltas, and their co-authors have shown um, remote work is not all great and uh, pure benefits, but we need to make a clear distinction between voluntary remote work and imposed remote work. The uh, transgender uh, software developers we have interviewed in this study, of course, have chosen themselves to work remotely. So it's again, it's a control uh, issue here. Uh, as opposed to the uh, imposed remote work, many of us, if not all of us, have experienced uh, in the recent months. Uh, and of course, lots of software developers are um, suffering from all kinds of issues related to this kind of imposed remote work. And some of them are simply related to inability to control things. So to summarize, what have we been talking about? So we talked about um, different kinds of uh, gender-related uh, issues in software development. We have seen that um, gender diversity is, for instance, beneficial for productivity and reduces likelihood of um, certain negative communication patterns. At the same time, we have, uh, so, so to conduct this kind of studies, uh, we of course need to find a way to uh, figure out who is uh, a woman, who is a man, who is uh, a non-binary person and whatever gender identity our participants might have. So this is of course a matter of um, reducing this enormously complex social construct to a couple of values. Uh, and a matter of privacy. So whatever method you are going to use, whether it is based on surveys and interviews or based on automatic tools, um, we are bound to make mistakes. So it is very, very tricky. It is very, very complicated. Uh, but I believe that the benefits of understanding the experiences of people of different genders is essential. And it is essentially the justification for this line of work. 
Talking about diversity is of course important, but it's only the first step. Diversity on its own, it's not enough. It's important to figure out how to make the environment really inclusive, how to make marginalized communities welcome in the broader uh, software engineering context. And as the last study has shown, uh, the very same solutions which can be proposed, hopefully can also work for different marginalized groups. Thank you very much. It will be my pleasure to answer your questions. Okay, thank you, Alexander, for the fascinating talk on this fascinating subject. Uh, we have time for questions. Uh, Ingrid has uh, manifested her interest in making a question. Ingrid, please. Hello, uh, thank you very much for the talk and, and bringing to CBSoft this, this very, very important topic. Um, so I have actually two questions. Uh, the first one is the following. Um, you mentioned about when you try to identify gender uh, through surveys, asking people if they are male, female or other, um, that uh, in, uh, in our survey, we have three times more people that are not identified as male or female than the rest of the population. Uh, but in fact, that might be a case that people don't want to disclose their gender. And I can say that by myself because I get annoyed when people try to make the surveys because for me, it shouldn't matter if I am a woman or, or not. Uh, I want to be a researcher. I don't want to be a female researcher. And, and in Brazil, for instance, uh, we have the, um, for the word professor or doctor, we put NA after the abbreviation. I don't do that in Portuguese because I don't want to be tagged as someone different. Uh, but I want to be treated equally in everything, including not being sexually harassed or being able to go to a uh, to have a drink with a colleague and not hearing gossip in the next day. So my question is this, do you think it's about people not wanting to disclose the gender? The second question is about the complaints that women uh, make about the, the rudeness in GitHub. Uh, my question is, is that because uh, they, are treatly, they are treated in, uh, in a bad way in comparison to men or are men rude to everybody? So it's because of uh, uh, discriminated treatment or are because women expect a different type of communication uh, uh, than men. So I, I wrote a, a short version of the question. So I'll put in the chat if you want to. Uh, yes. So thank you very much for those questions. So the first question was about uh, people not uh, wanting to disclose their gender. Um, yes, so this is why usually this kind of questions, this kind of survey items are not mandatory. So if you want to disclose your gender, you should be able to do so. If you don't want, you don't. But in general, um, what's important here is a matter of benefit. Um, it should be clear for the participant, why on earth are you asking about gender? Or why on earth are you asking about anything else? In, sense, in this sense, gender is no different than any other question. Um, specifically, uh, if you want to understand um, diversity dynamics, it makes a lot of sense to ask about gender, simply because people of different genders might have and usually have different experiences. 
with diversity kind of uh, with diversity dynamics with being uh, a single woman in a project team. Um, in every project or in every team I worked uh, with, uh, I was, I mean, there was always another guy there, right? I don't have this experience of being a single person of my gender in a larger group. And this can affect whatever uh, things going on. Uh, so it should be beneficial. It should be clear why are we asking about it. There is, uh, however, an um, opposite movement. It's coming from the uh, biomedical uh, world, from the work of um, Professor Hedaria. Unfortunately, the first name escapes me. Um, so the argument there is that uh, if we do not report number of women in our population, we are hiding them. So essentially, we might be making inferences based on single gender groups. And then given the dominance of men, this single gender group would be only men. So we, made me, we might be making inferences which are not necessarily applicable for women. And this is not a priori clear. Um, but we do need to be very, very careful with this kind of stuff. For instance, if you want to study program comprehension and things which are related to um, uh, physiology, right? Eye tracking, uh, blood pressure, all this stuff, right? It might make sense to include variables which are related either to gender or to sex. I don't know, right? But it, at least a priori, you could phantom an argument which would uh, which would indicate why do you need it so i think it should be important to it should be something we should be doing more often we should be more explicit about why do we ask a certain question in a survey so this was the first one and the second one was um i'm sorry ingrid can you please remind me it's in the chat it's in the chat in the in Discord or? Oh, sorry, because... I, I put only to Fernanda. Uh, yes, only now I noticed. Now oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, do we even have different? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Complaints on GitHub, right? So uh, first of all, uh, it's not GitHub; it's Stack Overflow. Uh, second, uh, so Stack Overflow is known to be a quite rude place, not necessarily in questions and answers, but in comments. Uh, and this is mostly because comments do not affect karma, they don't affect your reputation score, so people feel, um, you know, you can do whatever you want. Um, whether I don't have specific statistics, which would say that uh, most of whether there are differences in perception or whether there, is, there are specific things which are targeting women, but intuitively from a a couple of things which I read, which have been removed as being rude or inappropriate, some of them had a clearly sexist flavor. So again, I don't know how many of those are there, but unfortunately sexism is part of the society and it would be strange if Stack Overflow would be somehow conceptually different. Just a quick follow-up question about the, the first question. Um, so you mentioned that uh, it's important to know uh, gender because of the physiology, but if it's about the physiology, you are studying something that it's impacted by, by the physiology, what you should ask if you have an XX chromosome or XY chromosome, right? 
Uh, it depends, right? So you, if you are studying physiology, then you'll be probably looking more in the spectrum of sex rather than the spectrum of gender. Uh, whether it should be about chromosomes uh, or uh, about hormones or about anything else, I don't dare to say. Uh, we need to dig up uh, specific uh, biomedical literature or psychological literature where this kind of uh, physiological variables are taken into account and see which ones of them are relevant and which ones of them are not. Thank you. Okay, uh, yeah. there's another person on the line. It's Leopoldo, please. Uh, Cesar and Icaro, you're also recorded, you're in the queue. Alexander, thanks for the talk. Uh, very uh, informative and, and well prepared prepare and present it. Uh, I have a question about uh, this uh, last part where you mentioned the transgender study. I, stu I understand that's an initial study, of course, and uh, and uh, it might go further into that, but I was wondering whether like uh, the focus on remote work might also be a barrier of integrating uh, uh, these people, uh, uh, like uh, the minorities, into the daily lives as a whole, right? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think beyond only software development as a whole, like, uh, okay, it's, it, it might be convenient. Okay, they just do their work remotely. I don't have to interact with them. And 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 it could, it could uh, backfire. That's what I'm, uh, the, the focus on remote work. Of course, there's the caveat, right? We have, we are all remotely working now. So that's no, uh, uh, we have no way out of this uh, currently. But that's, that's just something that I was thinking that it could, in the long run, uh, be a, a barrier for integrating uh, uh, minorities. Uh, but I understand that as a first step, it also lowers uh, uh, the, the kind of entry uh, barrier in, in my sense. So do, do, have you thought about it? And... Well, I mean, we talked about, essentially, we did not really intend to talk about remote work specifically. Uh, if you look at the screen, you will see things which we talked about. Professional identity management, platform-specific barriers, online safety, perceptions of inclusion. So the entire thing of remote work emerged. So we didn't really ask them in the first place, do you like working remotely or not? Um, but it turned out that the safety concern was a primary concern. Uh, and this is where this remote work and online education and so on became beneficial. Depending on gazillion of other circumstances, people might prefer working remotely or not working remotely. Um, they can prefer, for instance, work remotely because they simply cannot afford not working remotely. Uh, again, don't, don't, so our participants who are living in the United States, um, it's easier to work for GitHub or Google or whatever in San Francisco while living in uh, thousands and thousands of kilometers away than actually living in San Francisco close to the office because it's so expensive, right? It's just one of the examples. So in this sense, um, I think that the experiences of our interviewees are more generic than uh, only what you have seen, right? So, of course, ideally, in the ideal world, um, all this should not matter, right? You should be able to uh, work remotely or not remotely 
um, depending on what you like. But as long as those safety concerns are there, I kind of felt that um, this is what's important for our interviews. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Jose Cesar asked on the Zoom chat, uh, I perceive gender as a human value. Thinking about value-based design and considering that developers use case tools daily, is this value taken into account when designing case tools? Can this have any influence on the inclusion of different audiences in open source? Well, I have to say that uh, human values research is not something I'm very, very familiar with. Um, but I can refer to the study uh, from the gender mag group, so Margaret Burnett, Anita Sarma, and so on, who essentially looked at gender specific barriers for contribution uh, on uh, GitHub. And they have identified several problems in the design of GitHub as a platform, which essentially discourages, um, let's say to hear women, right? So it's a bit more careful than that because what they are doing in gender mag, they're working with personas that are based on different personality and, and, di and different information processing styles, cognitive styles, and so on. Things like, you know, uh, are you embracing risk or are you avoiding risk and so on. Um, and those values show gender related differences. So the persona which is embodying uh, information processing styles, which are more common among women, so-called Abby persona, she had really, really hard time uh, submitting a pull request, for instance. Okay. Uh, thanks, Alexander. Uh, Icaro Crespo, thank you for the great talk. I have a question. SBC, the Brazilian Computer Society, and universities have some programs here in Brazil to increase female participation on development and computing courses. Do you think programs like that might be created to include uh, the gender diversity as well? I mean, he probably means other kinds of diversity, not just uh, cis females, probably. Well, I can imagine that essentially this kind of programs can be created for any kind of underrepresented minorities. Uh, but of course, you need to understand uh, what barriers do members of those groups experience. Uh, because, for instance, um, you know, in the Netherlands, uh, uh, the decision on direction of studies is taken very, very early. So kids have uh, some kind of general testing uh, at the age of 12. Uh, and while it is not mandatory, the parents have to be really confident in order to overrule uh, the outcome of this test and convince the school that their child is um, suited for this kind of program, that kind of programs. Essentially, it does not make so much sense for us to run a special program for women aged 18, simply because when they are aged 18, the choice for any other things than computer science is already made. So depending on what kind of obstacles uh, people from um, the minorities you have in mind experience, organizing this kind of uh, courses might or might not be appropriate. Mm -hmm. 
uh, an anonymous uh, member of the audience made the following question. Uh, in a recent paper, a reviewer asked me about the implications related to software development. For example, what kinds of automated tools can help female developers? That part's between quotes. Do you think we need tools focused on female and or gender uh, development tools? That's how it's written. Uh, yes and no. Um, so one of the worst strategies uh, which product developers uh, employ to attract women is pink it and shrink it. When uh, everything from pens to razors to whatever uh, is colored pink, uh, becomes smaller uh, <laughs> and significantly more expensive, and is suddenly marketed as a unique product for women. So there was even uh, a laptop, uh, I think it was. Dell that uh, tried to uh, advertise it in this particular way. It was small, it was pink, uh, it came up with a uh, book of recipes. So essentially all stereotypes in one place. And I think that this website uh, successfully survived for roughly half an hour uh, before <laughs> the public outcry was so bad that um, essentially they had to take it offline. So it's not only whether we need special tools, but also what kind of tools do we need? This entire this work on gender max that I mentioned tries to remove those barriers um, for participation of people with different cognitive styles or information processing styles. Um, yes, because certain information processing styles are more common among women, you would um, expect those things to work better for men, oh, sorry, better for women statistically, but it can also work quite well for men who exhibit similar information processing styles. Of course, at the same time, it is neither, it's, it's, it's not like either or, right? Let me give you another example from this gender mag world. Um, you have people who have a comprehensive information processing style, you have people who have heuristic information processing style. So a person with a comprehensive information processing style will read the entire document first and then we'll try to answer questions uh, related to the text. A person with heuristic information processing style will first of all look for questions and then based on those questions they will figure out which parts of the text to read. So, cognitive, so comprehensive information processing style is more common among women, heuristic information processing style is more common among men. But there are people who exhibit it of course the other way around, right? So what does it mean? So if you are writing a documentation on uh, 200 pages about your wonderful software project, you are catering people who are using heuristic information processing style because they will know how to, where to find the right information. The moment you are including some kind of auxiliary mechanisms, whether it's a table of contents, whether it's a summary in, before at the, every chapter, you are helping people who are doing it in a comprehensive way because then it is enough for them to look at the table of contents or summary or whatever and decide whether they need to de-read it or not. This is one possible improvement of documentation, website, whatever coming from the gender man people, which yes, it will help women, but it is absolutely not either or. It is not detrimental for people of any other gender in any possible way. Uh-huh. 
Uh, <clears throat> now, Kesia has uh, written her pretty big question on <laughs> Zoom. So I'll, I'll read it aloud anyway. Uh, Sarah Brennick, thanks for your inspiring speech. I'm very interested in the subject of gender diversity in computing, not only as a researcher, but mainly as a woman who works in the area and not only knows, but feels the problems we have in, uh, in such a, a male-dominated uh, area. Differently from Ingrid, I think it's very important to be seen as a female professional in computing because I uh, think representativeness is a key issue to bring women in computing. I'm very concerned about the reasons why girls run away from computing. Uh, I would like to know if you have investigated such reasons or if you have any insight from the interviews we made. You made. That's actually one of the questions I had uh, written here. <laughs> so, yeah, I think lots of the Andrea also said that she, she has the same question. Well, there are, uh, personally, I did not investigate. Let me, let me be clear about this one. Uh, mostly because I didn't really look into um, education from the perspective of research. But there are other people who have studied this. Um, there are things which are related to confidence versus competence. And it's not that women tend to be less competent than men, but they tend to be less confident in their competence. And this is, can go back uh, to um, early education when, for instance, um, boys tend to um, monopolize the time of the computer science teacher in the classroom. So there are all kinds of efforts worldwide uh, where uh, computing clubs are being created for kids. Teachers of those computing clubs usually have no uh, educational background whatsoever. They're just software developers who, who find it um, a nice idea to play with kids and to teach them programming. And admirable this intention as, as it might be, uh, those uh, coding club instructors tend to be, of course, men. So they are kind of mirroring themselves with kids. Subsequently, even those girls that join those clubs, they do not necessarily they don't necessarily get essentially what the boys are getting out of it. So what can be done about it? Uh, one of the things is uh, indeed um, gender separated uh, education. And of course, if as long as you are talking about it at the level of schools, this is extremely controversial. But if you are talking about it as some kind of coding club, this is less controversial. Uh, there is a great effort by Bara Bunova and uh, her um, peers in Chiquitas in uh, the Czech Republic, where they are running all kinds of trainings and all kinds of um, courses for women, starting from girls to um, uh, older women who want to transition to uh, software development. Um, so uh, if you want to try to improve the situation, this could be one of the ways to improve it. Another thing is, of course, this negative stereotype of uh, software development as a nerdy profession, which is unfortunately being propagated by television. Uh, so if you have any kind of connections to Brazilian uh, soap opera producers, 
uh, please tell them that the software developer is not necessarily uh, a guy who is uh, living with his mom and essentially programming uh, in the attic with uh, two uh, beer cans and a pizza. <laughs> this depiction is so weird. I mean, we don't even have attics, <laughs> typically. Well, yeah, you know, right? That's the only reason why it's not realistic. <laughs> uh, uh, another one uh, by Rafael. And there's one more after him. I don't know if we have time for further questions, but... Unfortunately, uh, I have to run because I have a master thesis defense uh, right after this meeting. Okay. Uh, but it will be my pleasure to answer those questions on Discord. So if you copy those questions on Discord, I will do my best to answer them. Okay. And thank okay. you again for my for giving me this opportunity. Okay. Uh, so you have to go now or do you still have time for one more? I mean, I have questions. I have time for one last question. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Paulo... Uh, who was in the line, please ask on Discord. Uh, Rafael, uh, Rafael Maiani de Mello, uh, thank you for your presentation. Which are the main challenges do you see to observe cause-effect relationships among self-declared gender and software engineering practices? Well, um, it's a million-dollar question, of course, right? Um, it's, it's any kind of human-driven research the amount of confounds is abound, right? Um, for instance, if you are talking about gender and open source, we know that women tend to join open source later than men. Subsequently, they are less experienced. So experience is always one of the confounds. Another thing is uh, under normal circumstances in the current society, uh, most of the domestic chores are still allocated to women in many, many countries, even though for specific couples, for specific uh, situations, this might not be necessarily the case. Subsequently, women have less time to allocate to voluntarily activities in general. So if your open source is voluntarily activities, then the time spent or the effort spent is yet another confound. So those are just two examples of confounding variables. So, okay, uh, this is, as I was saying, this is clearly a fascinating topic. I mean, we didn't have time for all the questions. Uh, please pose your questions for Alexander on Discord. Uh, in case you don't know, there is uh, a channel for keynotes, and there is one called Keynote Alexander. So please drop him a line and let's please, if, if possible, open our, our microphones and clap a little bit for Alexander for this great talk. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tayana. Thank you so much, Fernando, for inviting me. Uh, it has been a great pleasure for me to talk to you about this topic. And please let us continue continue discussing on Discord, on Twitter. I've seen that Gustavo was uh, posting some things on Twitter. Um, this is an important discussion to have. It's not, uh, it's not only a discussion which is important for women or important for men. It's a discussion which is important for us as a whole, uh, as the community of software engineering researchers and software engineers in the broader sense. Um, and it's important to hear different voices and different experiences. Uh, I 
I mean, there's there's not even a matter of agreement here. But even if you're only worried about the results themselves, it's still important. So uh, from every possible aspect, it's very important. Uh, Alexander, thank you so much. Uh, we will we'll talk <laughs> through Discord. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you everyone much. who attended. Bye. Thank you, everyone who posed the question. Uh, keep on looking. We'll have technical sessions throughout the day. Uh, check them out. Bye. Bye. <clears throat>